0: Lauren. Mike. Lauren, do you remember the dress? The one that was either blue and black or white and gold?
1: Who could forget the dress? And I think, I think I saw it as blue and black. What about you? Uh,
0: I saw it as white and gold. What? Yeah, I know. Well, you know what? It was one of the most popular articles in Wired's history and probably one of the most indelible moments in internet history. And it is now spawned, partially spawned, a book that is entirely about color that is written by today's guest. So let's talk about it. Hi everyone, welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired.
1: And I'm Lauren Good, I'm a senior writer at Wired.
0: We are also joined today by Wired senior correspondent, Adam Rogers. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm always glad to be here with fellow seniors. That's us. (laughs) Um, Last time we had you on was uh, during the the Mars mission to talk about the red planet. Today, we're just going to talk about red and blue and green and yellow and white and black and all the other things. We are talking about color because Adam, our guest, you just published a book called Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. It's about how we perceive color in the world around us and how that perception has led to important societal vital shifts in human history. In the second part of the show, we're going to talk about some of the mysteries of color science, which means that, yes, we are going to talk about the dress. But first, we want to start with the basics. Adam, you make the case in your book that the technological advancements made by humans in an effort to understand and recreate colors have actually driven whole civilizations. So please summarize for us now the bulk of human history.
2: (laughs) 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 <laughs> I, I, yeah um you you have no idea how hard that was to do in just a few hundred pages uh right yes i do make that case that was that was very uh much more cleanly put than i than i feel like i've been able to do it because it's such a complicated issue because of course when we talk about color we're actually talking about a bunch of different things. There's like the objective 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 I'm making scare quotes with my fingers it's hard to see that in audio medium, but there's the the physics of it. You know, there's photons streaming from the sun and and photons bouncing off of stuff is the most simplistic way to think about what color is or wavelengths of light because photons have energy levels that are also wavelengths. So that's confusing already, but you basically, they're basically the same thing. Um, and then, and then there's also the the, the technology of it, the surfaces that, that human beings make. We take things from the natural world and we, we grind them up or we do kind of nanotech scale chemistry on them and bio and, and physics. And we, um, and we make stuff and th- those things have colors and we can apply those colors. And then there's the the color that our eyes and brains perceive and turn into something that we can have cognition about. And those are all kind of related, overlapping, uh, but slightly different things. But it is the pursuit of new ways to make many humans' eyes and brains perceive colors in a way that they haven't before that has driven things as, as varied as, for example, coming up with workshops in, uh, in, in tens of thousands of years old archeological sites in caves in South Africa, to um, where they found abalone shells and stones that were used to grind ochre and mix it with gooey stuff like fat and blood to make the kinds of paints that you would apply to a cave wall, let's say, um, that you'd see in a place like Lascaux tens of thousands of years later, or um, driving the trade on the Silk Road, for example. So, for like a thousand years of human history most of the action was between these two poles, these two trade centers in the Abbasid empire in what we think of as the Arab world now, and basically Peking or Beijing. And the, that trade was driven by stuff like spices and, and fabrics to silk, textiles, but also by ceramics and porcelain and by the colors that those two civilizations could apply and use on those things. And like for a very significant amount of time, the ability to get, very, very high quality, beautiful white porcelain or very high quality, beautiful green porcelain, which are made in two different parts of China was one of the things that drove that trade. That's what people wanted. It was like, um, that was like the killer app because they wanted it to drink tea, which was the new fashionable thing at the time. And that <laughs> happens, that happens again and again. Um, is this, the, the pursuit of things that have color becomes um, so driving that it drives economies, which then drives the pursuit of finding new colors, which then drives the science to try to understand how those new colors can be perceived and how they're made, and then the cycle starts over again.
0: Yeah, remember the first red iPhone?
2: Everybody went bonkers for it. Mm-hmm. That happens, and you know the the thing about the the relationship between color and industrial design is a really profound one, one that I didn't understand well until I started reporting the book. But a lot of the like the famous name industrial designers who who we think of. Um, actually came out of the world of Broadway design. In the early 20th century, This the, um, the drive to new kind of engineering and new stuff that people could buy, like the engineers sort of couldn't keep up with a reason to buy a new refrigerator every year, a new car every year, a new locomotive every year, whatever. But the industrial designers came in with training from Broadway, where they were starting to use electrified colored lights for kind of the first time and said, you know, we could just make them different colors and then people are going to want them. Um, and it really it drove a ton of the, 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 the movement away from cars being any color you want except black, for example. There were others, but black was the fastest drying um, paint that Ford could get a hold of. But when General Motors changed their technology for making paint and could provide a bunch of different colors, that shifted the power balance in the automotive industry in the early 20th century. Wow. That's
1: fascinating. Um, Adam, this is the part where I throw a series of like kindergarten level questions at you. (laughs) Because I feel like when we talk about colors, it's impossible not to say things like, but why is the sky blue? So Mm -hmm. So my question for you is, who first came up with the names of colors? Like, why do we actually call blue, blue?
2: You know, it's beautiful about the way that you you constructed that as a kindergarten level question. And in fact, that question makes <laughs> linguists and cognitive scientists and neuroscientists and color scientists absolutely insane. It has driven so much research over, God, it, it, certainly, depending on how you think about this, either 100 years or 5,000 years of human history. Like, why do we call that color that color? When you call it that color, are you seeing the same thing as I'm seeing when I call it, or why do we have different names for that color? Right. So, uh, so I'll tell you a weird story from the advanced level of that instead of answering the kindergarten one of that. OK, what, you are, what you're asking about are what are called in the parlance of the, of the field, basic color terms. Right? Those are the words that only mean the color. So in a, you, you use blue blue turns out to be hideously complicated. Thank you very much. Um, so you, you, you don't mean turquoise, for example. I thought right? I was
1: giving you like, right, I was like, oh, I'm going to go with like magenta or chartreuse, but yeah. then I'll just stick with the oh, easy stuff. No, blue. chartreuse is
2: great. Chartreuse is a great <laughs> one to use because chartreuse okay. is named after this this alcohol, this booze that uh, the monks used to make. It was one of the first like distilled spirits mixed with uh, botanicals. So we, the color chartreuse comes from the, the stuff. Chartreuse it means chart house because that's where they distilled and made the stuff. And there's actually two of them, right? There's the green chartreuse and the yellow chartreuse. It means like a yellow-green color, right? So if I say chartreuse, that's a color, but it's not a basic color term because I'm talking about the color of the thing, which is confusing because there's a green one and a yellow one. That's fine. Green, yellow, or yellow, green. There used to be two Crayola crayons in the big 128 pack, yellow, green, and green, yellow. Always (laughs) reflects me. Um, They also had blue, green, green, blue. Anyway. but, um, But if I say yellow or green... Those mean themselves to you and me. Now, whether we mean the same thing, we almost certainly don't. If I say yellow, if I say imagine your perfect yellow, if I imagine a yellow and you imagine a yellow, they're probably very close together. But just because of the way the eye and the brain works, if I say imagine a green, if I ask you to imagine a green and I imagine a green, they're actually going to be like 50 nanometers apart if you're measuring by wavelength just because of the way the brain works. It's super weird. But different languages have different words for these colors. And in fact, there's a lot of famous research that tries to go back and go to people who are different, who are speakers, native speakers of different languages and ask them what colors they see, because they're trying to understand something called, well, trying to understand a lot of things. but One of the things is linguistic relativism, is if you the idea that if you don't have a word for something, can you actually think about it? Can you imagine it? And for hundreds of years, philosophers and scientists have used color as the example for whether you can or can't think about it. Philosopher David Hume talked about the missing shade of blue, for example, whether people could imagine a color of blue that they hadn't seen before. So here's the weird experiment. That was a lot of teeing up. Sorry. Um, English has one basic color term for blue, blue right? Russian mm-hmm. has two basic blues, has two basic color terms. One is what we would call light blue and one is what we would call dark blue. I can't really pronounce them. I don't speak Russian. So I'd probably pronounce that wrong. But so we have a basic blue. They have two basic blues, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you show native speakers, of both languages, if you do a triangle test, so you show them two of, of one of those, of, the, of a light blue or a dark blue, and then you bring in a third you know, colored tile or whatever, and, they're suppo- and you're supposed to say, if you're the subject, does it match or does it not match? right? So it's two light blues, you bring in another blue. If it's light blue, you say matches. If it's dark blue, you say doesn't match. In, in one experiment, native Russian speakers could do that faster than native English speakers. The idea being that somehow cognitively they were processing the color faster. That's this it, hypothesis, right? And, and that was not the biggest study in there, but it does give a sense of like the kind of thing that they try to figure out the language of color. So you asked a kindergarten question and I gave you a incomplete phd of an answer i apologize
1: (laughs) no but i mean who who were actually the first people to say this is how we're going to name a color
2: so there were a couple of researchers in the uh, middle of the 20th century who realized that some languages had fewer basic color terms than others berlin berlin and k were the two researchers and they tried a couple of different sets of experiments where they went out and tried to figure out which languages had more or fewer colors and for a while they thought they had a pattern for a while they thought it looks like every language starts out with a white and a black, and then if it has another color term, the next color that they name is a red. And then if it has those, the next color they name is like a red, and then the next one they name is a green. And they thought they'd found this pattern in languages. But it turned out to be, like all these things, much more complicated than that. The, the things that they were naming turned out to be more categorical rather than basic color terms. It looked more like cultures, the first things they do is they talk about dark and light. And it may in fact actually the, the divide in more recent research looks a little bit more like interestingly warm co- what we would say warm colors and cool colors, which is more of an artist's determination because the, the relationship between color and temperature is actually as confusing as all these other relationships. Um, but like, but but languages actually do apparently make a, a an information a, an information theoretic distinction between how much information they can get across how quickly with like a red turns out to be easier to get across than the blues do, which suggests that the blues and the greens, the cooler colors evolve later. Using the word evolve when it comes to languages is a really fraught term, but that's that's essentially the idea is that languages develop color terms as the language itself develops, probably having to do with which colors they need to name. What's, the inv- what's in the environment? What's more salient? What's the, what, how, how are people living? What's around them? What do you have to give a name to, to talk to people? So the connection between color and language is really, really intimate
1: wow this is you're blowing my mind because even just this this kind of basic idea that there are certain colors that are named after pre-existing objects or objects in nature like lilac as an example is a fundamentally totally different approach to naming a color than having a basic or you know primary color
0: yeah it's wild isn't it and it also says a lot about the subjectivity of color right because you're dealing with things that are that are you know in one sense objective like we all have rods and cones mm-hmm. and most of us perceive color in the same way but then you know that there are people who have color blindness and there are different kinds of color blindness men and women may perceive uh, colors in different ways and all of that is mixed up with like objective research about how these things reflect into our eyeballs.
2: Sure. So you can have a, um, you can have a wavelength of light that you and I could agree on what the wavelength was. We could agree that it was 480 nanometers, but then we have to, we have to sort of make a deal with each other to call that blue. Um, And we especially, we make that deal with each other as human beings with an assumption of a certain Definition of color normal vision, but we couldn't strike that deal with most other primates Because they don't see those colors the same way that we do. We certainly couldn't strike that deal with let's say uh, a bee because, first of all, it's hard to strike deals with a bee, but also <laughs> <laughs> because I could tell this metaphor was going off the rails, but it was too late. But also because- the,
1: I think we need the, to invite the bee on the podcast just sure to you know, make much, sure that we express their opinion too. Much
2: better guest than me, I know. Um, because the three photoreceptors in a bee eye- are tuned to different peak wavelengths, different spectra than the three photoreceptors are. So they see way down into the ultraviolet in ways that we don't. So the, the bee visible spectrum, or the bird visible spectrum, or the snake visible spectrum, or the whatever, is a different visible spectrum than the one that we talk about. All that stuff really makes it real weird when you you, you really start to internalize this. If you work on, like if you, for example, just hypothetically work on a book about this for a few years, and and then you like go walk, you go outside for a walk, you really, you start walking around very stoned, very quickly. You're like, whoa, that's not really, that color's not really there, is it? That's just a surface. I'm just looking at photons bouncing off a surface. (laughs) It's it's
0: real weird. (laughs) All right. We need to take a quick break, and we will be right back with Adam Rogers talking about color and it's going to get weird welcome back our guest today is our colleague wired senior correspondent adam rogers adam has just written a book that has recently been published called full spectrum how the science of color made us modern adam as we've been discussing humans have been obsessed with color ever since like long before we ever had Photoshop and Pantone swatches. But even after all that time, we still don't completely understand all the ways that color affects our brains. Since we have you on the show, I think we are obligated to ask you about the dress.
2: Uh, you know, when that, when that happened, uh, 2015, I guess. Um, and it started to spread around the internet. I was initially, I thought like, ah, another meme, whatever. (laughs) And then, uh, and then the, our, our then executive editor, uh, Rob Caps came over and plopped down next to me where I was sitting. He's like, do you see this dress thing? I was like, I know. It's ridiculous, right? And he's like, yeah, I can't. I know. I can't believe it. I said, I mean, it's obviously blue. And he looked at me and his eyes sort of froze and he sort of, his face went and he went, it's white. And I went, <laughs> oh, crap. And I realized at that, and at that, at that instant, I realized like, oh my God, I'm four hours late. Like, this is huge and I'm four hours late. And at that moment, Joe Brown, who was editing the website, then Joe came running across, like, no kidding, running, going like, you know, with his finger out toward the science desk and just, and all I did was look up, shouted out to him, we're on it. And like, I started <laughs> making calls. Um, and the reason I started making calls is that I had, uh, before I came to Wired, when when I was I was on a fellowship at MIT for science writers, and I had spent most of that fellowship obsessed with color and how people see color and what pigments were and how all that how the chemistry and science and neuroscience worked. So I had a couple of people who I could call who took my call and that 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 day was a weird day, right? Because what it what it coughed up was on screens, on the screens that we all look at these emissive screens that are made of little teeny tiny points of light, red, green and blue light and sometimes a white light also either behind them or next to them that managed to create not all the possible colors a human being can see, certainly not in 2015 when the gamut wasn't as good, um, but many of the colors that human beings can see, emitting them as light, not reflected, not subtractive pigments, but an emissive surface, showed this picture of a dress that became this super unusual thing, which is a a bimodal color illusion. So you know what, you know what illusions are, and you look at those in kids' books, and there's those ones that are like the, the rabbit or the duck. Or is the cube forward or back, those yeah. kind of things. And those are we call those bimodal because they have two different forms. People see them two different ways. But usually with a bimodal illusion of form, um, your brain switches back and forth. And the way that the, the eye and the brain perceive form and color are related to each other. They're kind of overlapping and they talk to each other, but they're sort of they're semi-separate systems. They're overlapping but separate systems. So this was this this was a bimodal illusion of color. Illusions of color at the time were thought to be really rare. Now there've been a lot of research of people working on color illusions, so you see them on Twitter all the time, and they're really fun. But they were rarer, and once your brain, it seemed, chose which one, chose the blue or chose the white, you just couldn't see the other one. It just locked off, and it became impossible. Like it became impossible to understand the person sen- sitting next to you who was saying it was the other color. Where well, you would just go, well, "That's not." Possible, you were seeing something that's not there, and they thought the same thing about you, um, which I, I would argue is why that became such a big deal. It's, we just it was one of those moments where you, you could just brook no uh, compromise, you know, right. and nobody right. understood why. And and after a time, you know that um, that sort of faded as a thing that people cared about on the internet, as these things do. But in the world of color science and in neuroscience and and neurophysiology, it really it, it flipped them out. Because they thought they'd understood a, a specific trait, a specific thing that the brain does called color constancy, which is the ability to see an object as having the same color, even when it's under different colored light, different illumination. So the best example I can think of of that is somebody shows you a, an, an egg, a picture of an egg, but it's under a red light, under a heat lamp or something. Your brain does not go, ooh, red egg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you brain... go white egg under red light. Exactly. Right, exactly right. Right. You subtract the illuminance from the object. Yeah, and 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 in this case, in the case of the dress, what looked like it was going on there was because it was like sort of in bluish, but also in shadow. But there were also some other light cues around it. If your brain thought that this was a picture that had been taken of an object late in the day in shadow, then you thought, oh, that's a white dress that's in the shade. But if you thought it was a picture taken under the hot noon sun in the middle of the day, when when the color of light around us all other things being equal, which mm-hmm. they never are because this is colors and it's super complicated, um, uh, is sort of a bright white, bright whitish right. light. Washed
1: out. Yeah. Right.
2: Then you thought, oh, well, that's a blue dress under white light. Right. And then your brain mapped all the other colors to those things. So it's like doing the thing that white balance is in a if you're using a digital camera, right? But it breaks in this context. It just, with the dress, it just broke. And, um, people, researchers thought that they had a pretty good handle of what sorts of computation the brain was doing to do color constancy. And this just showed them they had no idea that they were, they'd been wrong all along. And so they went off and did for years of research, trying to understand, including one researcher I talked to who who bought the actual dress, the real thing, and and did a bunch of experiments with people coming in and looking at it under different lights and seeing if, if she could adjust, um, how the, uh, how they would perceive it, what colors they saw. It turns out to not be bimodal at all. You can see it as all kinds of different colors, changing the color of light because it's sort of a shiny, weird, viscose fabric. Um, it it would change drastically depending on what sort of light she put it underneath. And it was the sort of research that for her and a lot of other people, when I would talk to them about what had happened, and I would get to the end of this and I would say, but just to be clear, it's a blue dress though, right? (laughs) (laughs) And they would basically say the equivalent of like, oh, you sweet summer child thinking that there's any such thing as an objective color. You know, there's no, no, it's whatever color you see under whatever light it is. There's no, it's not, it's not, it's, there is no, there is no dress. The secret is there is no dress.
1: Adam, your egg example reminds me of the time a couple years ago when I was writing about this new countertop oven. And the oven was, I think it was made of some kind of aluminum. So it was silver. Its it's exterior was silver. But our wired photographer decided when she took it in studio to use these different colored gels. Um, And she used some kind of, you know, I think it was a pink gel or something like that, that gave the the countertop oven, in this cast, this pink cast, which like we thought looked cool. Like we put it in the story and we were like, oh, all right, cool. It's kind of like artsy. The company did not think it looked cool. Oh no. Because it was a kitchen appliance. And I think that they were concerned that it was going to look like they had made a pink countertop oven that you know maybe would be marketed to women, and so then we ended up you know getting an email and and maybe it was angry, and then we were kind of racing to take that photo down and correct it. Um, but yeah, um, definitely one of those moments of like, oh yeah, just like a little a slight gel can actually make a huge difference in what a product looks like in photos and, it's and so- how
0: it's perceived, right? And like how what the intention of it is perceived to be exactly. exactly. And it's so weird too, you know. You bring up
2: pink and its association in like present day kind of western culture with femininity but that's that's new that's not even a hundred years old pink used to be a macho color in western culture it um, still is in italy there you go right it, it, it's <laughs> right
1: or maybe nantucket <laughs> <laughs> okay so adam let's talk about color and emotions because one of the things you write about in the book And I have to say, I I also have like briefly reported on in the past um, when I did this video about Dolby Labs, but you go much, much more in depth about this, is this idea that Pixar has used certain colors in its animated films to evoke certain emotions. So people probably know when they watch a Pixar film, they're either laughing or crying or they're feeling something, right? But it turns out that a lot of that is actually quite intentional. Talk about this.
2: Right. Well... To an extent, I feel um, a little, once I started talking about the idea that Pixar had this very careful use of color, scene on scene, that they would map with great precision um, to build the the virtual environments that they work in using light and color uh, to evoke whatever that moment was supposed to evoke. Um, but then I started thinking about it. I was like, "Well, that, yeah, that's you know what that is—is is, that's movie making. High. It's entertainment. Like, th- right? Yeah, I mean that's how you do that. Is what you're doing in a movie essentially. This is this is what I mean where it gets weird. Is like you you're like, well, geez, all a movie really is is just colors moving on a screen. Oh crap! <laughs> you know, like that's, uh oh, can't watch movies anymore. They're just colors. Um, <laughs> but. Um, but, but yes, because Pixar is not is, is filming in these environments over which they have complete control, not, not only of the colors and the light, but really complete control of the physics, like the essential physics of a, of a Pixar universe, they can tell it to be whatever they want. And so what that has meant is that given access to very, very high quality, ultra high resolution, ultra wide color gamut, uh, very high dynamic range, which is the blackest blacks to the whitest whites. Um, these are all the ways that you can describe a color space, a map of all the possible colors, because they're they're showing some of their movies, like when they were first working on Inside Out, which is the one with all the emotions inside the kid's head. Um, when they were first working on that, Cineplexes were just starting to kind of get Dolby Cinema, and, and Dolby Cinema is, this hu- is basically using you know six lasers to make the primary colors um, that it's beaming onto the screens, and they were using those to um, to make very, very intense color experiences that the folks... Uh, at Dolby, who you mentioned, Lauren had been studying for for quite a while, uh, really trying to understand color and how how color and dynamic range would change people's emotional states. And I I think you know this is the part where people go like, oh, so like pink relaxes you and blue is more trustworthy and red is angry. And it's not uh, th- that the connection's not like that. It's there. It's not a one to one emotional valence to color thing. And those change according to culture and your own background and stuff. But it is like if you sit in in front of the the setup they have at Dolby's. I know Lauren's seen this too, where they, they put the EEG cap on you and then they're monitoring your infrared temperature changes and they're monitoring your the gases that you're ex- exhaling because that changes with emotional state and they can really they just using sound and these and the incredible screens that they have access to they can really kind of change your emotional caliber like how emotional you how intensely you are feeling you're experiencing The thing that you're seeing and pixar definitely plays with a lot of that and experimentally i mean and they they'll talk about saying that what they really like to try is using these hyper intense hyper bright colors to induce like after images and after effects in the eye and in the brain which is one of the things that happens if you look at a bright light you'll and you look away you'll see the the complement of the color of that light the if you you look at a bright red light you look away you'll see green um and uh there so they were talking about using it to have like a really really bright color in one scene and then just dropping it like a you know, like an anvil at the end of the scene, so that when so that the whole audience in the next scene would see the other color in the next scene, and so the color wouldn't really be there. wouldn't really be there. Reallys in quotes, be is in quotes, and there is in quotes. The color wouldn't the color wouldn't be projected at them by the lasers or reflected off the screen. It would just be in the the audience's head, but it would still be the
1: color, which is weird. That's pretty wild. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's some psychedelic technology right there. That's right. See, and the whole time I always thought that my emotional response to the movie was directly correlated with whether or not Benicio del Toro is in it. But what you're telling me is that it's actually what the colors are on the screen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is that aversive or attractive? I don't know. Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> I love Benicio del Toro. Yeah.
0: So here we go. Um, so I have another question about objectivity. Uh, what is objectively the best color for wine? Is it white, red,
1: green? <laughs> Oh, now you're just you're combining all of Adam's expertise. It's a, it's a troll. It's a question. question. I know. There's a great.
2: I I did talk about. There's a, there's a, there actually are places of overlap in the two books. In the, in the I wrote this book, Proof: The Science of Booze, about about. This, it's about it's called Proof. It's about the science of booze. I wrote that thing, book, and then I wrote this book.
0: The thing the thing that made you the New York Times bestselling author. <laughs>
2: That's the one. Yes, That's, that was it back then. Um, that that the overlap between those two books, other than I get obsessed with stuff, is what a sensory experience is. It's what what happens when the imperfect meat sensors that stud our body and our heads transduce signal from outside that into something that we can deal with in our brains. And so there's a chapter on smell and taste in the booze book and then the color book is essentially all of that again. Of like the the in the in the case of of wine or, or any other or booze, you know, there's there are actual molecules that you smell and taste perceived by the tongue perceived by the nasal epithelium just behind the underneath your eyes behind your nose and those are real things and they get changed into or they are they are transduced into signals that we that we perceive and so like you can do experiments with wine there's a famous one on wine where if you don't show people what color wine it is if you show it to them in a, a opaque glass or underneath weird color light or something like that. That depending on what sorts of other clues you give them, they will taste it either as having all of the characteristics of a white, uh, you know, fruity, uh, light, floral, uh, dried fruit, apricoty, uh, tropical fruit, mineral, Um <laughs> And then if you you know you can flip them and they'll taste the exact same thing and they'll start talking about it as tasting of blackberries and dried figs and um, and they'll they'll you know all the sort of other the dark the, the red wine color words. Um, because the, because the signal that we get from the way the wine looks has a huge uh, impact on how we, how we taste it, how we smell it, and how we taste it. And because of that, with wine especially, it's really it's pretty easy to incept people with wine. Like when you go to a wine tasting and they, they want to give you the tasting notes, I always say, like, don't let them give you the notes before you taste it. You taste it first see what you, how how you're reacting to it. What do you taste in it? What do you like it? Do you not like it? What flavors do you taste? Is that fun? Then let them tell you what the flavor notes are because the, otherwise they'll just incept you with the notes. If they say blackberry, you're going to taste the blackberry, whether, mm-hmm. whether it's there or not. Again, the there is in scare quotes. Um, so I, is the question then, I guess, is that true with color too? You know, color by itself. If you I suppose you can, we, can, we could all think of things that we associate the specific color with a specific object and the emotional valence of the object. Um, Ferrari red, I guess, or British racing green for cars has a certain sort of like British racing green is not fast. There's nothing fast about that color. And yet it's a race car color.
0: Uh, Fender, the musical instrument company, has a, a color called Lake Placid Blue, which is like this beautiful baby blue. And just like it just makes guitar collectors drool.
2: Yeah. Makes it sound better, right?
0: Yeah. And it ages over time because they use like these weird lacquers back in the 1950s and 60s, nitrocellulose lacquers that age and they crack and they yellow. And like that changing of the color also makes the instrument more desirable because it denotes age.
2: Right. So there's an experiment, not an experiment. um, I'll go fast on this, but it's in the book too. It's in the book. It's in the book. Um, Harvard had a in its collection of art some Mark Rothko's big epic Mark you know Mark Rothko modern painter did like big color field big fields of color sort of had a luminosity and an emotional quality and you're supposed to get really deep inside them and feel feel what the color is showing you Rothko painted three of these designed to be installed in a room at Harvard they got a lot of damage, sunlight and other damage. People were in the room all the time. There were like, cigarette burns, stuff like that. The colors faded. And um, so the, the art restorer lab at Harvard at one of the universities there wanted to bring them back. But the things that they would ordinarily do to restore them wouldn't work. So like a lot of times what you do is you'll take the varnish off of a painting and put a new varnish on. You don't want to disturb what the actual intent and act of the painters were. But in this case, Rothko hadn't used a varnish because he was trying to get a specific effect. And he used some, he liked to mix his own pigments. He'd use some pigments that turned out to be particularly vulnerable to ultraviolet light like you'd get at sunlight, all kinds of bad stuff happened. So instead of doing anything to the surface of the painting itself, what these researchers did, the, the art restorers and some physicists and some computer scientists figured out using samples of other paintings and other data points, what color they could shine on the different parts of the paintings that when added to the color that was already there, would then look like what Rothko had intended. So they were using digital projectors to intentionally do what the dress had done accidentally to intentionally change the color of light, change the color of the painting when you looked at it. Which raises all kinds of philosophical questions, right? Because you go, well, is that really what it looked like? Well, what does it mean to ask what a painting really looked like? Is that is this still the painting? You had the Rothko, you had what happened to the Rothko, you have the light mask that you cast onto it, and then you've got this fourth thing, that's what happens when you project this light onto the Rothko that makes it look kind of like, not entirely, but almost entirely like the first Rothko. Um, and so where's the authentic art there? Well, the art becomes the collaboration, I think. And the, the, the most fun thing about that, I think, for me is that people used to go, when it, when it was on display, it was only on display for a while, but when they were on display, people would go specifically, New Yorker wrote a short article about this. People would go specifically to the gallery at 4 p.m. because that's when they turned the projectors off. Uh-huh. Huh. So you could go and you could see what it looked like with the light on it and say, that's pretty much like what Rothko wanted to do here. And then they'd turn it off so you could see what was there now. So you could see two different versions and see what the change was because people wanted to respond to both.
0: All right. Well, thanks for this discussion, Adam. It's, uh, It's pretty wild. The book is called Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern, written by our guest, Adam Rogers. We will be right back with our recommendations. All right, Adam. As our guest, you get to go first. What is your recommendation for our audience?
2: Well, I have, I have two. If that's all right, one of them. Yeah. Um, I, I just wrote this book. Uh, <laughs> What's what, what? It's ca- you did? Ca- really? Called Full Spectrum: How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. Uh, I, you know, it's available where books are sold. I would love it if people who are interested in such stuff would like to go buy it. Uh, but here's the other one. If you're not into that, I'll give you a science <laughs> fiction nerd one. <laughs> um, I have. We have HBO Max. At home, uh, HBO Max, despite all kinds of weird business stuff going on in Hollywood with the companies that own it and merge and whatever, I think HBO Max is a great streaming service because it has this incredible back catalog and all these weird shows that HBO makes in Europe and in the Spanish-speaking world, including a show from I'm, I've now found out from 2019 called Before Foreigners. It's from Norway. And the premise of the show is that all of a sudden, for reasons that either nobody knows or they haven't figured out yet on the show as far as I've watched, um, people from From Stone Age Norway, Viking era Norway, and the 19th century start appearing in the waters off of Norway, and then they have to get like brought into society like uh, displaced people. Yeah, and so and (laughs) so they're they're just from these three time periods, and so and and then it like it jumps five years later, and like all of the the Viking people have like an organized crime network because they're all like a lot of them are super badasses and the 19th century people are all like still dressing like because they're all from other cultures so they bring their other cultures you can go get mead at the bars and you can you know there's now there's opium dens uh because that's what those people wanted and they're trying it's all so it's all this sort of parable for for um, a multicultural society of course but it's across time and then because it's a tv show there's a murder mystery you know uh it's,
0: (laughs) it's really pretty delightful that's wild. What's the tone of the show? Is it is it like absurd or fun or serious, semi-serious?
2: There um, they have enough space where there's a little there is a little of both. There's it's definitely a serious mystery and there's some sort of new drugs involved and the society has really suffered a lot of problems and is on the verge of collapse in some respects, but also like there's the, there's cultural misunderstandings born out of being a newcomer to a new place. And the, the detective who is there's, there's two leads, a detective and his new partner. And the thing he doesn't know about his new partner is that she was, he knows she's from, they're not allowed to use the word Viking anymore cause that's culturally insensitive and they don't like that, but she was a shield maiden. So he doesn't know that she's actually basically wonder woman. Um, and she's kind of keeping that a secret because it scares people but she's got a whole other history with her super violent past um, that she's dealing with and it's sort of either played for laughs or
0: she just you know knows how to beat people up amazing yeah it's great oh lauren top that
1: i can i mean i can't i just <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, I I don't really have a good recommendation this week. Um, last week, I recommended ice cream. And now I think maybe I just am going to move to the country because I think the only interesting thing I've done this week is I had my first fly fishing lesson. So uh, I recommend fly fishing or at least taking a lesson to try to learn how to do it. It was really fun. So um, one of my brothers taught me and um, I greatly enjoyed it. So that's my recommendation. Did
0: you catch anything?
1: I didn't catch anything. We were there for probably like two, two and a half hours or so. And they were biting. The trout were biting, but um, not biting what I was throwing at them. And then that night, I had a dream that I caught something. And so that's how I know, like, when I learn new things, I really, I really run them through my brain a lot. I don't stop thinking about them after I've had a lesson for something or I'm in the process of learning something. And so I was, I was clearly still just like processing fly fishing and like want to do it again. And so I dreamt that I caught a fish, but I did not actually catch a fish. How pathetic is that? <laughs> I think that oh, also it's all catch and release for what it's worth. But yes.
0: Did you did you release in your dream? Did no, you? in
1: my dream actually, I was so clumsy that the rod ended up in the river. So um, the dream did not have a happy ending, even though I caught a fish.
2: I wonder if that's like neuromuscular integration, or if that's uh, you were actually got some access to seeing some parallel out in the quantum foam of the universe of like, oh, that's what would have happened. Yeah, you, you got oh. you got sliding doored on the river.
1: Oh yeah, like the, that was my that was my like my digital ghost, right? The one that like that's also the me that got married, that's the one that caught the fish and then <laughs> fell in the river. That's
2: that's right. You're getting to see all of her life. All
1: right. Yeah, that's a sorry, that's a like a really bad reference to another wired story I wrote. <laughs> um go check to it out. a really good
2: wired story. Um, it's a bad but you. a good story.
1: Yeah, yeah, but no, that I like that, Adam. That is like Wow, what if we have the ability to dream like what our lives would have been like if we were Gwyneth Paltrow in Sliding Doors? Um, <laughs> good reference. Okay, thank, Mike, thank what you is your... Re- thank you for hearing me out on fly fishing. Uh, Mike, what's your recommendation this week?
0: <laughs> I, I'm i going to recommend uh, a book. It's a memoir. Uh, it came out, I think, last year, but I just finished it. It's by a writer, uh, a Bay Area writer named Nina Renata Aron. And the name of the book is Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls. (laughs) Um, It is a very serious, very intense memoir about addiction and codependency which, you know, not exactly rosy topics, but she does a really fantastic job of telling her story, making it relatable, telling you about the people in her life who have been addicted, about her own addictions, and about her codependent relationships with all the people around her. Um, just a really engaging read that went to a lot of places that I was not expecting it to go. Uh, you know, there's there's humor in the story. There's a lot of pathos in the story, obviously, but it just has uh, this sort of, like it has this sort of emotional weight to it that isn't too burdensome and there are a lot of addiction memoirs out there a lot of them are very difficult to read there are not a lot of codependency memoirs out there Mm -hmm. so to read one uh you know first of all a check in the in the plus column but also to read one that is like digestible and uh not only very well written but you know not something that you're going to like really have to psych yourself up to read it's just it's a very it's very readable memoir about some very difficult topics so that's why i want to recommend it um you know maybe for somebody in your life maybe for yourself good morning destroyer of men's souls
1: i am going to download that before i get on my next flight thank you mike
0: (laughs) sure thing All right. That is our show. Thank you to you, our guest, Mr. Adam Rogers, for coming back on this here jam. It is always a delight to see you all and talk to you.
1: (laughs) And Adam, tell us once more the name of your book and where people can find it.
2: It is Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. You can find it at bookstores. You can find it at the places that sell books on your Internet in both uh, hard copy, electronic and even uh, audio form. It is available in all of those.
1: And we'll include a link in the show notes as well. Thank
0: you. And don't miss out on Proof, The Science of Booze. That one also. I wrote that one too. It's fun.
1: <laughs> Sorry, we were a little slow to respond to that because we've been enjoying that book quite a bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and of course, thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Goodbye, and we will be back next week.